You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a podcast on society, media, and politics. You can check out all the back episodes and you can find a link to send me a message at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have a piece by Caitlin Johnstone, which talks about the resistance. And I think one of the, the challenges we'll find from the resistance as it popped up after Donald Trump was elected is that it focused too much on Donald Trump, meaning it, it became for a large part, a cult of personality or anti-personality, as it were. And the focus was Trump bad, um, which ultimately ended up being successful, uh, but dangerously focused on Trump, who was a symptom and not the policies put forward by Trump. Um, which were more indicative of the underlying issue that our society, that our politics are constructed in a way that is not beneficial for all. And, and I, I paint with a very broad brush there. There were elements, there were people, there were organizations that, that counted themselves among the resistance that did focus on the policies, that did recognize it wasn't about Trump per se. It was about what Trump represented. It was about the structures that enabled Trump to become president and enact those policies. Here's a piece by Caitlin Johnstone. Who the resistance was actually resisting these last four years. After it was announced that the Biden camp had selected a Raytheon board member as his Secretary of Defense. I joked in my last article that it would be more honest if Raytheon itself was Biden's Pentagon chief, since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that corporations are people anyway. Raytheon for Defense Secretary, Boeing for Secretary of State, Goldman Sachs for Secretary Treasurer, ExxonMobil head of EPA, Amazon for CIA director, and Google for director of national intelligence. Waka waka. I'm so silly. Anyway, since that rant was published, NPR has reported that the next U.S. director of agriculture will be a man named Tom Vilsack, whose corporate cronyism the last time he occupied the same position earned him the nickname, I shit you not, Mr. Monsanto which is just too perfect for words, really. Bloomberg reports, quote, Some supporters of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders campaigned against Vilsack when he was under consideration to be Clinton's vice president, 
branding him Mr. Monsanto, and citing his role in brokering a compromise on legislation labeling foods containing genetically modified organisms. Sanders opposed the national legislation, which overrode a stricter Vermont state law. Biden's inadvertent self-parody of a cabinet is already shaping up to be just as chock-full of corporate swamp monsters as Trump's notoriously corrupt administration. With positions being given to the very last people in any ordinary human being with any common sense would want, President Biden is going to be just as much of a corrupt warmongering oligarch crony as his predecessors, and at least as destructive. Which makes one wonder, what exactly was the point of the resistance, and what has it been resisting all these years? After Donald Trump's 2016 election, a massive amount of energy went into the creation and promotion of a, quote, movement branded the resistance, which portrayed itself as a revolutionary counterforce against the corruption and malfeasance represented by Trump and his goons. Many a glowing puff piece was written about this carefully constructed, plucky band of rebels standing up against the forces of darkness on behalf of the common man, and many a a political donation was raised. The resistance, trademark, was aggressively marketed by cynical liberal spinmeisters like Neera Tandon, who in a brazen middle finger to U.S. progressives is also set to play a role in the Biden administration with the goal of harnessing and maintaining the enthusiastic grassroots anti-establishment energy of the Bernie Sanders campaign and directing it against Trump. But what did it actually accomplish? In the end, all the so-called resistors ended up doing was promoting a bunch of Russia conspiracy theories and an impeachment which failed to remove Trump all while providing no actual resistance to Trump's most pernicious policies. They'd yell and shriek on social media and mainstream media punditry panels anytime someone was fired from the administration and falsely get people's hopes up whenever new information came out about the Mueller investigation. But in terms of actually removing Trump from office or stopping him from doing evil things like starving Venezuelans, assaulting press freedoms with the per persecution of Julian Assange, tempting war with Iran, and perpetuating the mass atrocities in Yemen, they accomplished literally nothing. This is because the resistance was never actually intended to resist the evil agendas of the powerful, nor even to resist Trump. The resistance was not created to resist the powerful, it was created to resist you. The grassroots anti-establishment populism of the Bernie Sanders movement was cynically imitated by the Democratic establishment to ensure that the establishment is never inconvenienced in any way, and that progressives never take power in America. On a recent interview with MSNBC, Sanders himself historically far less willing to criticize the Democratic establishment than his supporters is heard complaining that the progressive base who put vote, whose votes put Biden over the top in November are so far receiving no representation whatsoever within the incoming Biden cabinet. Quote, 
If it wasn't for the hard work of a lot of progressive grassroots organizations who got young people involved in the political process, working class people involved in a way that we have not seen, Joe Biden would not have won that election. And I think that's pretty clear, Sanders says. And my point has been from day one that those voices, that movement, deserves representation in the cabinet. And if your question is, have I seen that yet? No, I have not. Of course you haven't, Bernie. You were never going to. Biden might create some sort of fake position to let progressives feel like they're participating, with a name like Progressive Outreach Team for Yelling Words into a Hole in the Ground or something. But in terms of actually directing the policy and behavior of the Biden administration, nobody who wants the interests of the people upheld over the interests of the powerful will ever have a hand anywhere near the steering wheel. The resistance spun itself as a revolutionary movement against the insidious forces of darkness threatening the United States of America. What it delivered was support for Trump's world-threatening Cold War escalations against Russia, the mass delusion that America's problems can be fought from within the establishment, progressives impotently chasing their tails for four years, and a presidency that is going to be just as much of a murderous oligarchic rim job as was delivered by the Trump administration. The engineers of the resistance did not want to eliminate Trumpian depravity. They just wanted to be the ones driving it. And now they are. If you fed into this nonsense in any way over the last four years, this is your reward. Which begs the question, if an entire political faction needed to sacrifice all its principles, all its values, and all its morality, to get rid of Trump. What exactly was the point of getting rid of Trump? Next up, a piece published at truthout.org. This is written by Jake Johnson. President-elect Joe Biden's reported decision to nominate Tom Vilsack to lead the U.S. Department of Agriculture was met with immediate backlash from progressives, who argued the former Iowa governor's industry-friendly record as Obama's USDA chief should have disqualified him from returning to the role. A coalition of environmental organizations and sustainable farming advocates had urged Biden to choose Representative Marsha Fudge, Democrat Ohio, to head the Agriculture Department, but the president-elect opted instead to nominate Fudge as his Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Quote, Representative Marsha Fudge would have been a historic first at USDA, a secretary on the side of everyday people, not corporate agriculture lobbyists. George Gohl, director of progressive advocacy group People's Action, said in a statement late Tuesday. Gohl called Biden's selection of Vilsack, quote, a terrible decision. Critics of Vilsack, who served as governor of Iowa from 1999 to 2007, have pointed to his failure to confront big ag during his time as USDA chief in the Obama administration. Journalist Branko Marsetic wrote for In These Times over the summer that, quote, While his tenure wasn't uniformly bad, Vilsack resisted Republican attacks on food stamps and upped federal support for organic food. He angered progressive groups by letting poultry factories self-regulate, speeding up the approval processes for GMO crops, 
shelving new regulations on big agriculture at the industry's behest, and stepping in to craft an industry-friendly national GMO labeling bill intended to replace a pioneering stricter standard in Vermont. The move, Marsetic noted, helped earn him the derisive moniker Mr. Monsanto. In the enmity of many Bernie Sanders supporters at a time in 2016 when he was shortlisted as one of Hillary Clinton's potential running mates. Prominent civil rights organizations have also raised alarm over Vilsack's record on issues of racial justice, pointing specifically to his department's treatment of black farmers and his 2010 firing of USDA official Shirley Sherrod after she was smeared by far-right publication Breitbart. It would be a slap in the face to all black people for this administration to appoint him, Corey Lee of the Cowtown Foundation, an organization that advocates for black farmers, wrote in a letter urging Biden not select Vilsack. The Washington Post reported that during a meeting with Biden on Tuesday, NAACP President Derek Johnson told the president-elect directly that, quote, he did not want Vilsack to be given the agriculture job. Goal of People's Action also highlighted the Sherrod firing and added that during Vilsack's tenure as secretary, USDA foreclosed on black farmers after they complained about discrimination. Quote, We need a USDA secretary on the side of everyday people who rely on the department in rural, urban, and suburban communities, Goal said. Instead, we're getting a revolving door appointment. If this is not the fox guarding the hen house... It's pretty damn close. And this kind of pushback from progressives and and the the remnants of those or the the better quality those those good parts of what was a, a segment of the resistance is extremely extremely important and useful now to getting some better faces in that cabinet. Uh, or at least expressing that, you know, we're not coming along for the ride. This isn't a free ride. The fact that uh, you got put in um, doesn't mean that we support what you're doing. And when we don't support what we, you're doing, we're going to be vocal about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to share information about it. And we're going to fight against it as hard as we fought against the policies of Donald Trump. Next up, a piece from worldbeyondwar.org. This is written by Norman Solomon and is republished from Roots Action. Just a few weeks ago, Superhawk Michelle Flournoy was being touted as a virtual shoe-in to become Joe Biden's nominee for Secretary of Defense. But some progressives insisted on organizing to raise key questions, such as, should we accept the revolving door that keeps spinning between the Pentagon and the weapons industry? Does an aggressive U.S. military really enhance national security and lead to peace? By challenging Flournoy while posing those questions and answering them in the negative, activism succeeded in changing Defense Secretary Flournoy from a fait accompli to a lost fantasy of the military-industrial complex. She is, quote, a favorite among many in the Democratic foreign policy establishment, Foreign Policy magazine reported on Monday night 
hours after news broke that Biden's nomination would go to General Lloyd Austin instead of Flournoy. But, quote, in recent weeks, the Biden transition team has faced pushback from the left wing of the party. Progressive groups signaled opposition to Flournoy over her role in the U.S. military interventions in Libya and the Middle East in prior government positions, as well as her ties to the defense industry once she left government. Of course, General Austin is a high-ranking part of the war machine. Yet, as foreign policy noted, quote, When Biden pushed to draw down troops from Iraq while vice president, Flournoy, then policy chief at the Pentagon, and then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mike Mullen, opposed the idea. Austin did not. Video of war-crazed Senator John McCain grilling Austin several years ago showed the general willing to stand firm against zeal to escalate killing in Syria, a clear contrast to positions that Flournoy had staked out. So there's there's clear marginal uh, differences and and improvement with Austin over Flournoy, but we'll talk about Austin in a few minutes. Flournoy has a long record of arguing for military intervention and escalation from Syria and Libya to Afghanistan and beyond. She has opposed a ban on weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. In recent years, her advocacy has included pushing military envelopes in potentially explosive hotspots like the South China Sea. Flournoy is vehemently in favor of long-term U.S. military encroachment on China. Historian Andrew Basevich, a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and former Army colonel, warns that, quote, Flournoy's proposed military buildup will prove unaffordable unless, of course, federal deficits in the multi-trillion dollar range become routine. But the real problem lies not with the fact that Flournoy's buildup will cost a lot, but that it is strategically defective, Basevich states. Strip away the references to deterrence, and Flournoy is proposing that the United States go to the People's Republic into a protracted high-tech arms race. With a record like that, you might think that Flournoy would receive very little support from the leaders of organizations like the Plowshares Fund, the Arms Control Association, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and the Council for a Livable World. But as I wrote more than a week ago, movers and shakers at those well-heeled groups eagerly praised Flournoy to the skies, publicly urging Biden to give her the defense secretary job. Many said they knew Flournoy well and liked her. Some lauded her interest in restarting nuclear arms negotiations with Russia, a standard foreign policy position. Many praised her work in high-ranking Pentagon posts under Presidents Clinton and Obama. Privately, some could be heard saying how great it would be to have, quote, access to the person running the Pentagon. More traditional allies of militaristic policymakers chimed in, often vilifying the left, as it became clear in late November that progressive pushback was slowing Flournoy's momentum for the Defense Department's top job. Notorious war enthusiast Max Boot was a case in point. Boot was evidently provoked by a Washington Post news story that appeared on November 30 under the headline, Liberal Groups Urge Biden Not to Name Flournoy as Secretary of Defense. The article quoted from a statement issued that day by five progressive organizations, Roots Action, where I'm National Director, Code Pink, 
Our Revolution, Progressive Democrats of America, and World Beyond War. We conveyed that a Flournoy nomination would lead to a fierce grassroots battle over Senate confirmation. Reporting on the joint statement, Common Dreams aptly summarized it in headline, Rejecting Michelle Flournoy, progressives demand Biden pick Pentagon chief, quote, untethered from military-industrial complex. Such talk and such organizing are anathema to the likes of Boot, who fired back with a Washington Post column within hours. While advocating for Flournoy, he invoked an old Roman adage, Civi passum parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. He neglected to mention that Latin is a dead language and the Roman Empire collapsed. War preparations that increase the likelihood of war may excite laptop warriors, but the militarism they promote is madness nonetheless. And like that piece mentioned, a big part of that battle against Flournoy was her connections with the arms industry. And, uh, Unfortunately, her replacement not only is no better, but has some of the exact same connections. They were joint partners in the same um, project, which is what this next piece is about. This is written by David Sirota, and this is published at dailyposter.com. Potential Biden officials firm is promising big profits off those connections. Two former government officials who may now run President-elect Joe Biden's national security team have been partners at a private equity firm now promising investors big profits off government business because of its ties to those officials, according to the government documents reviewed by the Daily Poster. Pine Island Capital Partners lists former Undersecretary of Defense Michelle Flournoy and retired General Lloyd Austin as a partner in the firm. Hmm, where have we heard those two names just a minute ago? And list former Deputy, former Deputy Secretary of State Antony Blinken as a partner on leave of absence. Flournoy and Austin are reportedly among the leading candidates being considered for Secretary of Defense, and Blinken is Biden's designated nominee for Secretary of State. Pine Island's chairman is John Thane, the former top executive at Merrill Lynch, when the company paid out huge executive bonuses as it began to collapse during the financial crisis. Flournoy and Blinken's ties to Pine Island were first reported by the American Prospect. In Securities and Exchange Commission filings, Pine Island describes one of its investment vehicles as, quote, a newly organized blank check company incorporated in Delaware, that will use its connections to top officials to take advantage of rising government expenditures on the national security agencies that Flournoy and Blinken could oversee. Pine Island's first filings about the investment vehicle were made in September, the same month Biden suggested he will not push for significant reductions in Pentagon expenditures, which have reached record levels. Quote, the re reputations and networks of Pine Island Capital Partners team, both individually and collectively, will ensure exposure to a significant number of proprietary opportunities, the company said in one SEC document. Hmm, selling inside influence or something? 
Quote, we believe there will be increased demand in the U.S. defense market for advanced electronics, communications, sensor and detection processing, and other technologies that enhance the modernization efforts of the Department of Defense's military readiness. We believe this demand represents strong growth that our management team is uniquely positioned to capitalize on, given our combined investment experience and deeply connected partner group of former U.S. defense and government officials. The company says Thane and CEO Philip Cooper founded the firm, quote, on the idea that a talented group of accomplished, highly respected, commercially savvy, and long-tenured former government and military officials, when fully aligned and engaged, could enable a first-class investment team with better access, better information, better expertise, and better management skills than those typically found in private equity firms. Quote, This is so explicit that it's astonishing Pine Island even put it on paper, said David Segal of Demand Progress, a grassroots group pressing Biden to reject cabinet appointments tied to corporations. This is not an example of people who happen to work at a big company. These are partners at a firm whose stated business model is to profit from the revolving door and connections gained from time in government. On November 16, two weeks after Election Day, Pine Island announced an initial public offering of $200 million in its new investment vehicle called Pine Island Acquisition Corp. In that filing, the company suggests that because of its ties to former government officials, it will have an advantage in investing, and it specifically boasts that its team includes Flournoy. Quote, Pineapple Capital Partners spends a majority of its time focused in the aerospace, defense, and government services sectors, where Pine Island Capital Partners believes it has extensive connections to industry leaders, unusual access to information. I'm going to have to repeat that. Unusual access to information and often unique insights into specific companies, programs, and overall market dynamics, the company declares. The reputations and networks of Pine Island Capital Partners team, both individually and collectively, will ensure exposure to a significant number of proprietary opportunities. Pine Island also says that it expects to profit off the COVID pandemic in its potential investments in government information technology services. Quote, We further believe COVID-19 will be a tailwind for the sector, the company writes. Critical to any successful government services offering is the skill set, integrity, and security clearances of those who execute on its strategy. Our deep bench of connected advisors and former government officials will be the catalyst to recruiting, retaining, and developing an elite team of managers and employees, which we believe will enable us to exploit an opportunity in government services. And I repeat, exploit an opportunity in government services. The financial relationship between Blinken, Flournoy, Austin, and Pine Island could in theory be detailed as part of the Senate confirmation process. However, government ethics regulations allow that information to be concealed if nominees assert that they signed non-disclosure agreements with counterparties. Nothing like laying out 
in detail the way that these quote-unquote external organizations, uh, the, the military-industrial complex, as it were, enmeshes itself into the federal government organizations. Here's a piece by Nick Terse and Alec Emmons, published at The Intercept, at theintercept.com. Biden Defense Secretary nominee Lloyd Austin comes under fire for industry connections. Last month, two progressive members of Congress sent President-elect Joe Biden a letter requesting that he commit to nominating a Secretary of Defense with no previous ties to weapons manufacturers. The letter from Representative Mark Pocan of Wisconsin and Representative Barbara Lee of California cited President Donald Trump's Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, a former lobbyist for Raytheon, one of the country's largest defense contractors, and called on Biden to adopt a different standard and find a nominee with, quote, no prior employment history with a defense contractor. But on Tuesday, Biden announced that he will nominate retired four-star General Lloyd Austin III, once the top commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East, and now a member of the board of directors at Raytheon. The company has been in the spotlight during the Trump administration in part because it supplies air-to-ground munitions for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen and Austin's role with Raytheon could be central to his confirmation fight. Austin oversaw U.S. operations in the Middle East until March 2016, a year after the Saudi-led intervention began. He retired from the military the next month, and later joined the board of United Technologies, a defense contractor that merged with Raytheon earlier this year. In 2019, Raytheon proceeded with an $8 billion arms sale to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which included air-to-ground munitions. After Congressional Democrats blocked the sale on human rights grounds, the Trump administration helped force the sale through by declaring a state of emergency. Quote, Raytheon manufactures the bomb components that are used in Yemen. He bears a direct responsibility. Phyllis Bennis, who directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, told The Intercept, He was making money as a board member of this company that is directly responsible for the death and destruction there. William Hartung, the director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy, told The Intercept that picking Austin was, quote, tantamount to making the position of Secretary of Defense the, quote, Secretary of Defense Contractors. The potential for conflicts is huge, Hartung said. Raytheon is deeply involved in controversial programs from unworkable missile defense projects to nuclear weapons, the new nuclear-armed cruise missile, to precision-guided bombs that have killed untold numbers of civilians in Saudi Arabia's brutal war in Yemen. If General Austin were to recuse himself from decisions on programs and policies involving Raytheon, he could not carry out large parts of his job as Defense Secretary. Austin was reportedly selected from a pool of other leading contenders with ties to top weapons companies. Michelle Flournoy, the former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, joined the board of Booz Allen Hamilton in 2018. 
and Jay Johnson, the former Secretary of Homeland Security under President Barack Obama, sits on the board of Lockheed Martin. One of only a few African Americans to ever become a four-star general in the Army, Austin was the first African American in charge of a regional combatant command overseeing U.S. forces in the Middle East, and if confirmed, he will be the first black Secretary of Defense. The Congressional Black Caucus leaned heavily on Biden to select either him or Johnson, who is also black. And, side note, this is, this is a problem with quote-unquote representational politics in this manner, making your cabinet look more diverse, which is not in and of itself a bad thing, but is not the, the only thing if the only qualification for somebody is their race or their gender, then you can have a phenomenally diverse um, team. But what matters is not only what they look like, but what they do and what they stand for. As we saw with President Obama, the fact that President Obama was black did not fundamentally change the racism inherent in our society, in our social structures, and in the U.S. culture. It's it's not entirely without its benefit visually seeing someone who represents you, who represents what you are and represents what you look like in an elevated position has its own benefits, but those benefits by themselves don't outweigh the enormous harm that you may perpetuate in that position, uh, regardless of what you look like. Austin was formerly the commander of U.S. forces in Iraq, where he oversaw major troop withdrawals under Obama before becoming the top U.S. commander in the Middle East. In the U.S. campaign against the Islamic State, he reportedly pushed for more restrictive rules of engagement in an effort to reduce civilian casualties, but faced scrutiny from congressional Republicans who wanted the military to intervene in Syria. Quote, I've never met the man, but people who have worked with him say it will be easy for the White House with him in charge, said Bennis. That is, he's unlikely to challenge his commander-in-chief. When you're talking about orders that might violate international law or lead to the death of civilians, you want somebody who is willing to push back. That doesn't sound like him. In contrast with other military leaders during the Obama administration, like Generals David Petraeus or Stanley McChrystal, who maintained high profiles and sometimes clashed with the White House, Austin is known as a quieter presence. He earned the trust of many in Obama's inner circle, including Biden. In an op-ed in The Atlantic on Tuesday, Biden said that Austin, quote, played a crucial role in bringing 150,000 American troops home from the Iraqi theater of war. Pulling that off took more than just the skill and strategy of a seasoned soldier. It required Austin to practice diplomacy, building relationships with our Iraqi counterparts and with our partners in the region. He served as statesman, representing our country with honor and dignity, and always, above all, looking out for his people. 
Biden wrote. Quote, I am certain that General Austin will find other ways to serve his country in retirement, Obama said, as the general exited the government in 2016. But since he left the military more than four years ago, Austin has formed extensive private sector ties that could surface during his confirmation hearing. In addition to Raytheon, he joined the board of directors of the steel production company Nucor Corporation, Tenet Healthcare Corporation, and Guest Services Incorporated, a hospitality management company. And both Austin and Antony Blinken, Biden's nominee for Secretary of State, have ties to Pine Island Capital Partners, a large investment firm that has raised hundreds of millions of dollars for acquisitions in defense companies this year, according to the New York Times. Austin joins an increasing number of generals and top military officials who exit to the private sector, holding lucrative positions at top companies. One 2018 study by the Project on Government Oversight tracked 380 cases of former military officers and Department of Defense officials who, in the previous years, became board members, executives, lobbyists, or consultants with defense companies. Private sector work was the subject of intense scrutiny during the confirmation hearing of Esper, Trump's last Secretary of Defense. Prior to joining the Trump administration in 2017 as Army Secretary, Esper worked as a senior lobbyist for Raytheon. He faced sharp questioning from Elizabeth Warren of over whether he would fully recuse himself from matters involving Raytheon as Defense Secretary. And Raytheon is based in Massachusetts, the state of Senator Elizabeth Warren. It will be interesting to see if she takes as tough of a role in questioning um, Austin as she did with Esper. When Esper did not commit to fully recusing himself from any decision involving Raytheon, Warren said that it, quote, smacks of corruption, plain and simple. It is unclear whether Senate Democrats will hold Austin to the similar standard, but his role with Raytheon could create ethics complications. Austin is slated to face a rocky confirmation process, not only due to his business ties, but also because his nomination already was criticized as a violation of civil military relations. By law, the Secretary of Defense position is a civilian position and not supposed to be held by recently retired officers. The rule is meant to emphasize civilian control over the military, and Austin has not yet undergone a legally required seven-year-long cooling-off period. Austin's confirmation will require Congress to waive that requirement, just as they did with Trump's first Secretary of Defense, retired General James Mattis. That puts Senate Democrats in a difficult position. Seventeen voted against granting Mattis the waiver, and the top Democrat on the Armed Services Committee, Senator Jack Reed, Democrat from Rhode Island, said at the time that he was unlikely to support a similar waiver in the future. In a statement on Tuesday, Reed said that he would review the nomination carefully. Quote, One cannot separate the waiver from the individual who has been nominated, the statement said. Warren told CNN on Tuesday she would oppose Austin's nomination on the grounds that Congress shouldn't grant waivers to recently retired generals. Quote, the principle of civilian control of the military is important. It is not a guarantee that civilian will be any more conscious of the consequences of war, 
but the prohibition should not be waived lightly, said Bennis. From the Pentagon to tech policy, here is a piece written by Mike Masnick, published at techdirt.com. Biden's top tech advisor trots out dangerous ideas for, quote, reforming Section 230. It is now broadly recognized that Joe Biden doesn't like Section 230 and has repeatedly shown he doesn't understand what it does. Multiple people keep insisting to me, however, that once he becomes president, his actual tech policy experts will understand the law better and move Biden away from his nonsensical claim that he wishes to, quote, repeal the law. In a move that's not very encouraging, Biden's top tech policy advisor, Bruce Reed, along with Common Sense Media's Jim Steyer, have published a bizarre and misleading but think of the children attack on Section 230 that misunderstands the law, misunderstands how it impacts kids, and which suggests incredibly dangerous changes to Section 230. If this is the kind of policy recommendations we're to expect over the next four years, the need to defend Section 230 is going to remain pretty much the same as it's been over the last few years. Let's break down the piece and its myriad problems. From the piece, quote, Mark Zuckerberg makes no apology for being one of the least responsible chief executives of our time. Yet at the risk of defending the indefensible, as Zuckerberg is wont to do, we must concede that given the way the federal courts have interpreted telecommunications law, some of Facebook's highest crimes are now considered legal. Uh, wait. No. There's a very sketchy sleight of word right there at the opening, claiming that Facebook's highest crimes are now considered legal. That is wrong. Any law that Facebook violates, it is still held liable for, assuming they get prosecuted. The point of Section 230 is that Facebook and any website should not be held liable for any laws that its users violate. Reed and Steyer seek to elide this very important distinction in a pure blame-the-messenger way. Quote, It may not have been against the law to livestream the massacre of 51 people at mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, or the suicide of a 12-year-old girl in the state of Georgia. Courts have cleared the company of any legal responsibility for violent attacks spawned by Facebook accounts tied to Hamas. It's not illegal for Facebook posts to foment attacks on refugees in Europe or try to end democracy as we know it in America. This is more of the same. The Hamas claim is particularly bogus. The lawsuit in that case involves some plaintiffs who were harmed by Hamas and decided that the right legal remedy was to sue Facebook because some Hamas members used Facebook. There was no attempt to even show that the injuries the plaintiffs face, faced had anything to do with Hamas using Facebook. The cases were tossed because Section 230 did exactly the right thing. Note that the legal liability should be on the parties actually responsible. We don't blame AT&T when a terrorist makes a phone call. We don't blame Ford because a terrorist drives a Ford car. We shouldn't blame Facebook just because a terrorist uses Facebook. 
This is fairly basic stuff, and it's shameful for Reed and Steyer to misrepresent things in such a way that is designed to obfuscate the actual details of the legal issues at play, while purely pulling at heartstrings. But the heartstrings pulling was just the beginning, because this whole piece shifts into the typical, but think of the children, pandering quite quickly. Since Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act was passed, it has been a get-out-of-jail-free card for companies like Facebook and executives like Zuckerberg. That 26-word provision hurts our kids and is doing possibly irreparable damage to our democracy. Unless we change it, the Internet will become an even more dangerous place for young people, while Facebook and other tech platforms will reap ever greater profits from the blanket immunity that their industry enjoys. Of course, it hasn't been a get-out-of-jail-free card for any of those companies. The law has never barred federal criminal prosecutions, as federal crimes are exempt from the statute. Almost every Section 230 case has been about civil disputes. It's also shameful that Reed and Steyer seem to mix up the differences between civil and criminal law. Also, I'd contest the argument that it's Section 230 that has made the Internet a dangerous place for kids or democracy. Section 230 has enabled many, many forums and spaces for young people to congregate and communicate, many of which have been incredibly important. It's where many LGBTQ plus kids have found like-minded people to discover they're not alone. It's where kids who are interested in niche areas or specific communities have found others with similar views. All of that is possible because of Section 230. Yes, there is bullying online, and that's a problem. But Section 230 has also enabled tremendous variation and competition in how different websites respond to that with many creating quite clever ideas on how to deal with the downsides of purely open communication. Changing Section 230 will likely remove that freedom of experimentation. Quote, It wasn't supposed to be this way, according to former California Representative Chris Cox, who wrote Section 230 with Oregon Senator Ron Wyden. Quote, The original purpose of this law was to help clean up the Internet, not to facilitate people doing bad things on the internet. In the 1990s, after a New York court ruled that the online service provider Prodigy could be held liable in the same way as a newspaper publisher because it had established standards for allowable content, Cox and Wyden wrote Section 230 to protect good Samaritan companies like Prodigy that tried to do the right thing by removing content that violated their guidelines. But through subsequent court hearings, the provision has turned into a bulletproof shield for social media platforms that do little or nothing to enforce established standards. This is just flat-out wrong, and it's embarrassing that Reed and Steyer are repeating this out-and-out myth. You will find no sites out there, least of all Facebook, the main boogeyman named in this article, quote, that do little or nothing to enforce established standards. Facebook employs tens of thousands of content moderators and has a truly elaborate system for reviewing and modifying its ever-changing standards, which it tries to enforce. We can agree that the companies may fail to catch everything, but that's not because they're not trying. It's because it's impossible. That was the very basis of 230, 
recognizing that an open platform is literally impossible to fully police, and 230 would enable sites to try different systems for policing it. What Reed and Steyer are really saying is that they don't like how Facebook has chosen to police its platform, which is a responsible, ar- which is a reasonable argument to make. But it's not because of 230. It seems to be because Steyer and Reed are ignorant of what Facebook has actually done. Quote, Facebook and other platforms have saved countless billions thanks to this free pass, but kids in society are paying the price. Silicon Valley has succeeded in turning the internet into an online wild west, nasty, brutal, and lawless, where the innocents are at most risk. Bullshit. Again, Facebook employs tens of thousands of moderators and actually takes a fairly heavy hand in its moderation practices. To say that this is a wild west is to express near total ignorance about how content moderation actually works at Facebook. Facebook spends more on moderation that that Twitter makes in revenue. To say that it's saving billions thanks to this free pass is to basically say that you don't know what you're talking about. Quote, The smartphone and the internet are revolutionary inventions, but in the absence of rules and responsibilities, they threaten the greatest invention of the modern world, a protected childhood. This is, but think of the children, moral panicking. Yes, we should be concerned about how children use social media, but Facebook, like most other sites, doesn't allow users to have accounts if they're under 13 years old. And the problem being discussed is not about 230, but rather about teaching children how to become more discerning digital citizens when they're online. And this is important because it's a skill they'll need to learn. Trying to shield them from absolutely everything rather than giving them the skills to navigate it is a dangerous approach that will leave kids unprepared for life on the internet. But Reed and Steyer are full in on the think of the children moral panic. So much that they, and I only wish I was joking, compare children using social media to child labor and child trafficking. Quote, Since the 19th century, economic and technological progress enabled societies to ban child labor and child trafficking, eliminate deadly and debilitating childhood diseases, guarantee universal education, and better safeguard young children from exposure to violence and other damaging behaviors. Technology has tremendous potential to continue that progress, but through shrewd use of the irresponsibility cloak of Section 230, some in big tech have turned the social media revolution into a decidedly mixed blessing. Oh, come on. Those things are not the same. This entire piece is a masterclass in extrapolating a few worst-case scenarios and insisting that they're happening much more frequently than they really are. Eventually, the piece finally gets to its suggestion on, quote, what to do about it, and the answer is, destroy Section 230 in a way that won't actually help. Quote, but treating platforms as publishers doesn't undermine the First Amendment. On the contrary, publishers have flourished under the First Amendment. They have centuries of experience in moderating content, and the free press was doing just fine until Facebook came along. (laughs) Side note, the quote-unquote free press in the U.S. has been crap. It has been commercialized and corporatized, and it's a giant mouthpiece 
for the powerful, the rich, and the politically connected. <clears throat> that completely misses the point. Publishers handle things because they review every bit of content that goes out in their publication. The reason why we have 230 treat sites that host third-party content different than publishers who are publishing their own content is because the two things are not the same. And if websites had to review every bit of user content like publishers do, then we'd have many fewer spaces online where people can communicate. It would stifle speech online massively. Quote, The tech industry's right to do whatever it wants without consequences, its soft underbelly, not its secret sauce. But it is not a right to do whatever it wants without consequence, not even remotely. The sites themselves cannot break the law. The sites have very, very strong motivations to moderate, including pressure from their own users, because if they don't do the right thing, their users will go elsewhere, the press, and especially from advertisers. We've seen just in the past few months that advertisers pulling their ads from Facebook has been an effective tool in getting Facebook to rethink its policies. The idea that because 230 is there, Facebook and other sites do nothing is a myth. It's a myth that Reed and Steyer are exploiting to make you think that you have to, quote, save the children. It's bullshit, and they should be ashamed to peddle myths. But they lean hard into these myths. Quote, Instead of acknowledging Facebook's role in the 2016 election debacle, he slow-walked and covered it up. Instead of putting up real guardrails against hate speech, violence, and conspiracy videos, he has hired low-wage content moderators by the thousands as human crash dummies to monitor the flow. Without that all-purpose Section 230 shield, Facebook and other platforms would have to take responsibility for the havoc they unleash and learn to fix things, not just break them. This is not an accurate portrayal of anything. It's true that Zuckerberg was initially reluctant to believe that it had a role in 2016, and there are still legitimate questions as to how much of an impact Facebook actually had, or whether it was just a convenient scapegoat for a poorly run Hillary Clinton campaign. But by 2017, Facebook had found religion and completely revamped its moderation process regarding election content. Yes, it did hire thousands of content moderators, but it's bizarre that Reed and Steyer finally admit this way down in the article, after paragraph upon paragraph insisting that Facebook does no moderation, doesn't care, and doesn't need to do anything. But more to the point, if they don't want Facebook to hire all those content moderators, but do want Facebook to stop all the bad stuff online, how the hell do they think Facebook can do that? The answer to them is the same as wave a magic wand. They say to take away Facebook's 230 protections, like that will magically solve stuff. It won't. It would mean much greater taking down of content, including content from marginalized voices. It would mean Facebook would likely have to hire many more of those content moderators to review much more content. And most importantly, it means that no competitor could ever be built to compete with Facebook because it would be the only company that could afford to take on such compliance costs. And the article gets worse. 
Reed and Steyer point to FOSTA as an example of how to reform 230. Really. Quote, The simplest way to address unlimited liability is to start limiting it. In 2018, Congress took a small step in that direction by passing the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. Those laws amended Section 230 to take away a safe harbor protection from providers that knowingly facilitated sex trafficking. Right. And what was the result? It certainly didn't do what people promoting it expected. Craigslist shut down its dating section, clearing the field for Facebook to launch its own dating site. In other words, it gave more power to Facebook. More importantly, it has been used to harm sex workers, putting many lives at risk, and shutting down places where adults could discuss sex, all while making it harder for police to find sex traffickers. The end result has actually been an increase, rather than a decrease, in ads for sex online. In other words, citing FOSTA as a good example of how to amend Section 230 suggests whoever is citing it doesn't know what they're talking about. Quote, Congress could continue to chip away by denying platform immunity for other specific wrongs like revenge porn. Better yet, it could make platform responsibility a prerequisite for any limits on liability. Boston University law professor Danielle Citron and Brookings Institution scholar Benjamin Witz have proposed conditioning immunity on whether a platform has taken reasonable efforts to moderate content. We've debunked this silly, silly proposal before. There are almost no sites that don't do moderation. They all have, quote, taken reasonable efforts to moderate, except for perhaps the most extreme. Yet this whole article was about Facebook and YouTube, both of which could easily show that they've, quote, taken reasonable efforts to moderate content online. So if this is their suggestion, it would literally do nothing to help the problems they insisted were there for YouTube and Facebook. And instead, what would happen is smaller sites would never get a chance to exist because Facebook and YouTube would set the standard for how you deal with content moderation, just like how the EU has now set YouTube's expensive content ID as the standard for any site dealing with copyright-covered content. So this proposal does nothing to change Facebook or YouTube's policies, but locks them in as the dominant players. How is that a good idea? But Reed and Steyer suggest maybe going further. Quote, Washington would be better off throwing out Section 230 and starting over. The Wild West wasn't tamed by hiring a sheriff and gathering a posse. The internet won't be either. It will take sweeping change in ethics and culture, enforced by providers and regulators, instead of defaulting to the shield to shield those who most profit. The United States should shield those most vulnerable to harm, starting with kids. The polluter pays principle that we use to mitigate environmental damage, which we barely do, can help achieve the same in the online environment. Simply put, platforms should be held accountable for any content that generates revenue. If they sell ads that run alongside harmful content, they should be considered complicit in the harm. Likewise, if their algorithms promote harmful content, they should be held accountable for helping redress the harm.
In the long run, the only real way to moderate content is to moderate the business model. Um, that would kill the open internet. Completely. Dead. And it is a stupid fucking suggestion. The, quote, pollution they are discussing here is First Amendment protected speech. This is why thinking of it as analogous to pollution is so dangerous. They are advocating for government rules that will stifle free speech. Massively. And again, the few companies that can do something are the biggest ones already. It would destroy smaller sites. And it would destroy the ability for you or me to talk online. There's more in the article. But it's all bad. That this is coming from Biden's top tech advisor is downright scary. It is as destructive as it is ignorant. Next up, we go back to The Intercept for a piece written by Vanessa A. B. We mentioned Marsha Fudge earlier in an earlier piece when she was being potentially considered or maybe just recommended for... Uh, the Agriculture Department, but here's uh, the direction that Biden's heading. Long before a global pandemic pushed even more households to the brink, data collected in January 2019 showed that as many as half a million people were unsheltered on any given night. Public housing is and has been suffering from a multi-billion dollar deficit, a chronic underfunding that has left millions of people in deplorable living conditions. As the number of renters increased after the 2007-2009 financial crisis, affordability has steadily plummeted. In 2017, almost half of all renters were handing more than 30% of their income to the landlord. For extremely low-income households, the rent burden neared 50%. Meanwhile, despite the Civil Rights Act of 1968's recent golden anniversary, segregation and discrimination continue to plague housing. The guarantee of safe and affordable housing is too important for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to continue being treated as the short straw by incoming White House administrations. Despite HUD's great potential in addressing America's cycle of housing crises, Recent administrations have failed to dignify it with leadership experienced enough to hit the ground running. The resumes of the cabinet picks speak volumes. When they are thin on housing experience, one can often presume a grooming for higher office. Andrew Cuomo, HUD secretary under Bill Clinton for the eventual, eventual job of governing New York. His successor, Mel Martinez under George W. Bush, for one of Florida's Senate seats. Julian Castro, it was rumored for vice president to former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. For the young and ambitious man, HUD can be a low-stakes stepping stool. Other resumes tell the story of a White House indebted to its pick, though not so much as to hand them the job they really covet. The latter might explain how Dr. Ben Carson, an accomplished medical surgeon with no background in housing finance, found himself at the helm of HUD under Donald Trump. Two years into the job, Carson was still confusing REOs, short for real estate-owned properties, with the chocolate sandwich cookie in a very public congressional hearing. 
a predictable outcome when an agency's mission is an afterthought of the administration. In line with this tradition, the Biden-Harris camp announced on December 8 that it was tapping Representative Marsha Fudge for Secretary of HUD. A cursory glance at the Ohio Democrat's career makes it clear that she has never led a public housing authority or developed an affordable housing complex. She did serve as mayor of Warrensville Heights, Ohio, but she is not a trained urban planner or former advocate for indigent clients. She has neither represented tenants in housing court nor investigated the banks that fueled the foreclosure crisis, nor has she managed a shelter for the unhoused, administered disaster relief grants, taught the complex scheme that governs federal housing on Native American land, or published research on housing market conditions. She does not appear to have ever filed suit to enforce the civil rights laws that prohibit discrimination in housing, though she did once work for a county prosecutor. Fudge's tenure in Congress reveals no interest in the housing universe. Since her first election to the House of Representatives in 2008, oh, maybe that's that's the connection. She's in the House of Representatives. The Ohio Democrat has sat on three House committees, Education and Labor, House Administration, which does not work on housing, and most recently, Agriculture, on which she chairs a subcommittee. Though a subcommittee on housing, community development, and insurance exists, this congresswoman has never served on it. This does not mean Fudge is incapable of grasping the breadth of HUD's mission, surrounding herself with knowledgeable advisors, and getting down to work quickly but it does suggest that she will initially do so without familiarity with the field's long-standing debates, the stakeholders in any given rulemaking, or the experts across the political spectrum, including those who operate off the Democratic Party's Rolodex. Beyond her utter lack of connection to the post offered, Fudge has made choices that warrant serious evaluation of her suitability for this particular job. In 2018, Fudge refused to support the Equality Act, which sought to explicitly prohibit discrimination against LGBTQ people in a number of areas, such as on public premises and in housing. The congresswoman first argued that she would vote for these same protections if they were in a standalone bill, rather than in the format presented to her. Defending her decision on Twitter, Fudge stated, quote, What I opposed was including the Equality Act in the current Civil Rights Act. In May 2019, however, she voted with her party to pass the Equality Act. But after four years of a HUD administration openly hostile to LGBTQ people, a period during which Secretary Carson ridiculed transgender people and proposed a rule to permit their exclusion from shelters, Fudge's initial hesitation towards the Equality Act is discomforting, and her explanation unsatisfying. After all, it is not uncommon for the discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity to overlap with categories of discrimination already covered by the existing Civil Rights Act. And journalist Jamal Smith reported in Rolling Stone five years ago, Fudge went out of her way to write to the Cuyahoga County prosecutor in support for Lance Mason, a former legislator and county judge in her state. At the time, Mason was serving a two-year sentence for brutally beating his wife. In 2018, having been released early, Mason stood accused of fatally stabbing her. In her letter, 
Fudge had described Mason as a kind man and loyal friend. Her letter became public as Fudge was being floated as an alternative to Representative Nancy Pelosi for Speaker last Congress. The representative's compassion was laudable for its exception. Hers was a kindness rarely shown to people convicted of violent crimes. That could matter for recipients of housing assistance. Under the Obama administration, HUD prodded public housing authorities to open units to people with criminal records. At the same time, by calling the beating a very bad mistake, while insisting that her friend's actions were out of character, Fudge displayed a naivete about the patterns that often characterize intimate violence. It also obscured the gravity of the assault, which counted severe punching, choking, biting, and head slamming. Intimate violence is a major driver of housing insecurity. This is part of why HUD housing programs provide important protections and rights to victims of domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, and stalking. It is imperative that any incoming secretary of HUD understands this and takes the implications seriously. Their leadership in such matters could be, for many, a question of life and death. Why should the Post go to fudge when so many qualified other advocates can finally give HUD constituents the champion they deserve? Next up is a piece by Bill McKibben. This is not on a proposed or revealed um, selection by the Biden administration for the cabinet, but is a recommendation. This is published in theguardian.com. Occasionally, presidents have a chance to make choices that change the way we view things. One of those opportunities comes in the next few days, when Joe Biden is expected to name the next Secretary of the Interior. The Interior Department dates back to 1849 and President Zachary Taylor. Largely forgotten now, in part because he died after 16 months in office, Taylor had first come in prom- to prominence fighting in the Black Hawk War, which led to the policing of the policy of, quote, removing Native Americans to the far side of the Mississippi, and then as general in the Second Seminole War, where he fought the Battle of Lake Okeechobee. Over the years, its secretaries have ranged from the corrupt Albert Fall of the Teapot Teapot Dome fame to remarkable Stuart Udall, who in the 1960s became the most persuasive champion of conservation the government had ever seen, to the unpleasant James Watt, Reagan's choice, who lost his job when he explained to a Chamber of Commerce gathering that one of his agencies boasted a black, two Jews, and a cripple. But there's one kind of American who's never run the department, and that's a descendant of the people who, well, once owned the interior. I think owns a bad choice of words there. That could change the New Mexico Congresswoman Deb Holland, one of the first two Native American women ever elected to the House, is considered a frontrunner for the job. From the beginning, one duty of the department has been to handle, quote, Indian affairs, which is to say they have administered what's usually been a gruesome set of policies. Holland's grandmother was taken away to boarding school when she was eight, as part of the process to break the chain of cultural connection that stretched back into the very ancient history 
of the Laguna Pueblo. Holland, both of whose parents served in the military, was a single mother on food stamps. Nonetheless, she managed to graduate from law school, and she was soon chairwoman of the Tribes Development Corporation, successfully overseeing its casinos and other businesses. She ran the state's Democratic Party before her election to Congress, where she has managed to make friends across party lines, region, and ideology. The Alaska Republican Don Young, longest-serving member of the House, called her a consensus builder, and according to the journalist Julian Brave Noisecat, her House legislation has attracted more companion bills in the Senate than any other representative. She's already served as vice chair of the House Committee on Natural Resources and chair of the Subcommittee on National Parks, Forests, and Public Lands. She knows precisely what she's getting into. Contrast that with the Martha Fudge uh, nomination for HUD. But she's also beloved of environmentalists. The Sunrise Movement has offered an unstinting endorsement, and she's introduced the 30 by 30 Act, which sets a national goal of conserving at least 30% of the land and 30% of the ocean within the United States by 2030. Full disclosure, I've spoken at fundraisers in both her congressional campaigns. She's argued persuasively that the best route out of the coronavirus recession is to move swiftly to build out clean energy. Quote, we need to listen to our planet and act now. While we do that, our country can reap the economic benefits of new industries and address economic inequality. Much of the next Interior Secretary's role will be simply to clean up the mess left by Trump. After Ryan Zinke was caught up in corruption investigation, he was replaced by oil lobbyist Dave Bernhardt, who has been remarkably successful in rolling back environmental regulations. At the moment, he's doing his best to sell off oil leases in the country's largest wildlife refuge before Biden can take office. And no matter who's secretary, they will face controversy. Biden has promised to end all new fossil fuel drilling and mining on public lands, most of which fall under Interior's domain. That will go down hard in parts of the West, but who better to tell the oil boys that they no longer have control of the land than someone who can say it once belonged to her and her people? In truth, if her competence and vision are the best reasons for giving her the job, her background comes next on the list. It would be a remarkable plot twist in the American story for an indigenous person to run interior. A gesture can't repair much of the damage that's been done, but it can serve as a constant reminder of the debt still to be repaid. There's never been a Native American cabinet member. For most of our history, sadly, it would have been an outlandish idea. Now, it feels absolutely necessary. And... <clears throat> I was not familiar with this person before this piece. Based on what is in this piece, this is the right way to promote representation by someone knowledgeable and skilled and with, a, with positive policies in the area that they are being promoted to oversee. And without uh, a whole giant, enormous weight of industry connections not being from the oil industry is is critical in this kind of a role. Next up, a piece from Common Dreams, 
at commondreams.org. This piece is written by Jessica Corbett. And here's a good, a good, another good example of the the kind of positive pressure that can be put on Biden, and then we can see what Biden's really made of based on his response to the pressure. A large and diverse coalition of over 550 organizations came together Tuesday to call on President-elect Joe Biden to tackle the plastic pollution crisis through executive actions that would collectively help turn the tide against consumer waste that is choking the planet's natural world and harming human health. Quote, More than 99% of plastic is created from chemicals sourced from fossil fuels, including an oversupply of fracked gas, which is spurring a global boom in new plastic production. That plastic is causing serious environmental problems at every step of its life cycle, the group points out, explaining the need for action. In addition to the 10 steps previously proposed by advocacy organizations urging Biden to lead as a climate president, the coalition behind the new call is pushing him to become the first plastic-free president by embracing their presidential plastics action plan. Quote, President-elect Biden can begin solving the plastic pollution crisis in his first days in office without any help from Congress, noted Julie Teal Simmons, a senior attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity, a member of the Break Free from Plastic movement, and a convening partner of the action plan. Quote, Implementing this historic plan would protect vulnerable frontline communities and marine life while addressing a key driver of climate change, she said. It's time to rein in the fossil fuel industry's insidious plans to keep fracking for plastic and polluting poor communities here and around the world. The plan urges the incoming Biden administration to, one, use the purchasing power of the federal government to eliminate single-use plastic items and replace them with reusable products. Two, suspend and deny permits for new or expanded plastic production facilities, associated infrastructure projects, and exports. 3. Make corporate polluters pay and reject false solutions. 4. Advance environmental justice in petrochemical corridors. 5. Update existing federal regulations using the best available science and technology to curtail pollution from plastic facilities. 6. Stop subsidizing plastic producers. 7. Join international efforts to address the global plastic pollution crisis through new and strengthened multilateral agreements. And 8. Reduce and mitigate the impacts of abandoned, discarded, and lost fishing gear. Each broad recommendation comes with specific suggestions. As part of the effort to eliminate single-use plastic, the coalition proposes appointing a plastic pollution czar to coordinate reduction efforts across federal agencies and internationally. To make corporate polluters pay, the plan pressures Biden to throw his support behind the historic Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act unveiled in Congress earlier this year. Quote, Plastic production and pollution impact public health, the environment, and climate, and it has reached crisis levels around the world, with the United States as one of the biggest contributors. Representative Alan Lowenthal said Friday, explaining why he introduced the bill with Representative Catherine Clark as well as Senators Tom Udall and Jeff Merkley, 
and vowing to reintroduce it in the next congressional session. Quote, The Presidential Plastics Action Plan lays out how the incoming Biden administration can lead on this plastic waste issue and enact real solutions like updating important regulations and greater cooperation with the international community, Lowenthal said. We are running out of time to deal with this crisis, but our bill and the Presidential Plastics Action Plan are important approaches to put us on the right track moving forward. Noting petrochemical industry plans for more than 300 new projects over the next decade, the coalition pushes the incoming president to direct federal agencies to deny permits for building or expanding refineries, ethane crackers, pipelines, natural gas liquid storage facilities and hubs, import and export terminals, and other related infrastructure. In its demand for advancing environmental justice, the plan acknowledges that, quote, Petrochemical companies continue to locate new and expanded plastics facilities near existing fossil fuel infrastructure, which means they are targeting the Gulf Coast, Appalachia, the Ohio River Valley, and other communities that already shoulder a heavy burden of oil, gas, and plastic industry pollution. One of these hubs is the so-called Cancer Alley, an industrial stretch of Louisiana that runs along the Mississippi River that is the site of a multi-billion dollar petrochemical complex that Taiwan-based Formosa Plastics Group intends to build, despite objections and health concerns from community members. Sharon Levine, founder and president of the group Rise St. James, is helping to lead the local fight against Formosa's plans for the plant. She is also a supporter of the plastics plan targeting the next administration. Quote, If the Formosa plastics complex is built, it would be a death sentence for St. James Parish. We already have so many people dying here, mostly from cancer, and others with terrible reproductive issues. If the petrochemical build-out continues, we won't be able to breathe the air, and we will die, said Levine. We are asking the Biden administration to consider the lives of the people here in St. James Parish and take action to protect us. Backers of the action plan want Biden to not only aid communities across the country impacted by plastic pollution and industry, but also to address the crisis on an international scale. As Common Dreams reported last month, under President Donald Trump, the U.S. government has been in a small minority of United Nations member states, signaling it's unwilling to participate in a global treaty on the issue. Carol Muffett, president of the Center for International Environmental Law, another convening partner of the plan, said that, quote, President-elect Biden should commit to the United States to actively support a new global treaty on plastic pollution, use U.S. trade power to support real development, not plastic polluters and move quickly to reverse U.S. subsidies and export export policies that are accelerating the plastics crisis globally. And finally, a piece written by Margaret Kimberly, this published at blackagendareport.com. What do black people need most right now? The list is a very long one and includes living wage work, affordable housing, protection from killer police, relief from student loan debt, and the establishment of a publicly run health care system. 
If the black political class have their way, none of these issues will be addressed in any serious way. Apparently, the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, CBC, and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, are most concerned with human resource issues. They want to make sure that black people are appointed to cabinet-level positions in the Biden administration. It is fine for black people to be part of the revolving door of government that brings insiders to cushy positions in the White House. That is, after all, how the system functions. But it is another thing entirely for the attention of all black people to be focused on whether or not some already prominent and highly paid individuals become the new black faces in high places. There are some 48 million black people in the United States, and nearly all of them have been impacted by the many dislocations created by the COVID-19 pandemic. The ironically named essential workers are in fact the most vulnerable, as they must choose between earning a wage to survive or risking exposure to the virus. Then there are people who can't work at all. They are unemployed and Congress did nothing to extend the additional $600 per week, which ran out in July. The public sector suffers too, as mass transit systems in New York, Boston, Washington, San Francisco, Chicago, and every large city have announced disastrous cuts in service unless they receive emergency funding. The employed and unemployed alike will have a hard time getting, getting to or looking for jobs. Of course, it must always be pointed out that COVID-19 has been far more lethal to black people, with death rates 2.8 times higher than for whites. The worst and most deadly racial disparities involve law enforcement and the carceral state. It is still true that black people make up half of all those incarcerated in the country, and despite being only 13% of the population, are one-third of all those killed by police. In the face of these crises, why is appointment to high office such a priority for the people who claim to represent those who are suffering so badly? The black political class, the misleaders, are doing just what they were created to do. They give the impression of exercising black empowerment when they are in fact only promoting themselves. They will never speak to the myriad of issues that are crushing black life because doing so puts them in the position of biting the hand that feeds them. If Joe Biden were to be, as Bernie Sanders called him, the most progressive president since Franklin Roosevelt, there would be no question that the pandemic suffering would end. If the Democrats lived up to even a little of their reputation as the party representing the needs of working people, they would develop an unprecedented program of governmental intervention. They would bail out the states and cities, replace the income of unemployed and evictions and foreclosures, and develop a health care system that met the needs of the public. They don't even go through the motions of advocating for these and other issues. Instead, the black political class go right along with phony outrage about black cabinet appointments. That is why black people must ask themselves what they would like to see. Kamala Harris cutting ribbons and being sent to represent Biden in countries he doesn't want to bother visiting won't put food on anyone's table. Black Americans must reach a consensus about their own needs 
and do so without input from the people, who won't even pretend to put up a fight. Donald Trump's antics and claims of a fraudulent election are still garnering too much attention. All eyes should be fixed on Biden and not the man who will leave Washington on January 20. The austerity that started with Clinton and moved on with Obama will be passed to Biden, and the misleaders will again play their shameful role in a sordid tale if no one speaks out. The presidency is a powerful office. If he wants to, Biden can make every fatal encounter with police subject to federal instead of local prosecution. He can issue an executive order for giving student loan debt. Biden can direct the Department of Labor to stop wage theft, including the misclassification of workers as managers, which deprives them of overtime pay. The new president can do all of these things without congressional approval, and that is what the CBC and NAACP ought to demand, but won't. A Democratic White House always brings opportunities to those with the right connections. But what if the 48 million other people... Is being rid of Trump all they can expect? In his victory speech, Biden said, quote, The African-American community stood up again for me. They always have my back, and I'll have yours. But talk is cheap. Biden can't promise rich funders that nothing will fundamentally change, while also taking action that black people desperately need. The needs of the people are diametrically opposed to those of the donor class and their black misleader minions. The people are going to struggle. The question is whether it will be a basic struggle to survive or one which can bring much needed change. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can check out all the back episodes and find out more at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And we're going to end this episode with a song. This is by Paris. This is from the album Pistol Politics. The track is called Change We Can Believe In, featuring Sandy Griffith. Thanks for listening. And we we learn not to question our government and um, to be grateful for everything we got. But we didn't know that it was at the expense of many other people in our own country and all over the world. life and what it means to me baby Seems all the parties right. Now I'm looking around wondering 
what the hell has happened to us it's on again just misery so many promises so many of us tried to make him what he really wasn't still suffering so many unemployed still watching nsa got me paranoid Maybe wanna holler, throw my hands up Got us thinking that we wrong if we demand stuff So we propped a man up, but what it get us? More useless excuses and more fed up Sounds so sweet when he making speeches Always preaching hope and change like he really means it Manchurian candidate Ladies love to hear him talking cause he's so we sweet it, but they never really understand No they don't, but we bring it Never seem to take a stand No, they won't No, we mean it Better know they really ain't your friend And they shown it So believe in me Believe in Believe in Mr. President, wartime president, slicker than his predecessor, but it's still the same shit. Lost jobs, lost benefits, lost public option, lost souls follow quick. Lost all respect for that shitty selling. Same conflicts, but his reason ain't compelling. Same cars, same manufactured boogeymen, same bombs drop when his poll numbers dip. Same profiteering, war's good for business. Same Israel nut jockin', shit is endless. Same Wall Street bailouts, early Christmas for them same. Same motherfuckers that should be in prison Same racism, nothing changed, bruh Wing nuts wanna point and say I told you so We both hate his shit, but for different reasons, though They hate cause he black, we hate cause he we wrong We but they never really understand No, they don't, no. no, we bring it But they never seem to take a stand No, they won't, no, we mean it Better know they really ain't your friend nope. And they shown it, so believe in me So I say it all again, man. Same shit, different day, all the same, man. Same news cycle, same yapping magpies. Same gats clapping overseas, taking lives. Now they say I'm hating cause I pulled his skirt. Same people that done lost their house and out of work. Got the nerve to think that I'm speaking out of line. Can't criticize cause he supposed to be my kind. But scared Negroes won't rock the boat. Same Bush era tax cuts, same drones. Same folks on lock, Guantanamo. Same campaign stops. Same shitty jokes Cracked while the world gets choked on And most black folk broke but still hold on To the illusion of choice Both parties, both sides of the same bullshit we coin it, but they never really understand No, they don't, so we bring it But they never seem to take a stand right. they won't, no. we mean it Better know they really ain't your friend And they shown it, so believe in me Stay. No, they won't. No, we.